When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Tired of looking for something new to watch? Sundance Now is the exclusive home to prestige TV dramas and obsession-worthy true crime from around the world. No ads, no cable needed. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use the promo code VIVID. Sundance Now. Start something new. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Yeah, I always think of my parents' divorce as an empathy gym for me, right? I mean, it sort of, it forced me to, almost really as a survival skill, to work at sort of connecting and reading people. Um, it's, it's, it was a high-stakes version of empathy training. And I think a lot of my work now, a lot of my life, is uh, surrounds the mission of creating empathy gyms for other people. That's Dr. Jamil Zaki. And yes, he did say he's creating empathy gyms. Not actual places you can go to, but things you can do to get a workout for your empathy skills. That's something we seem to need now more than ever. So when I saw his book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World, and his argument that we can and should exercise this ability we have to read other people and to connect with them, well, I just had to invite him on the show. This is so great that you can come and talk with me today. You you are an expert in something dear to my heart and dear to the heart of this whole podcast, which is empathy. Your introduction to empathy seems to have come at a very early age with your family, your parents. Yeah, that's right. Uh, first, it's a total pleasure to be here. And yeah, you're right. I mean, I've been thinking about empathy since way before I knew what that word meant. Um, so it turns out that my my parents come from very different places. In the 1970s, Washington State University in Pullman offered full-ride graduate scholarships to uh, students from the world's poorest nations. And my mom got the scholarship from Peru my dad actually didn't get a scholarship. He was not as good a student as my mom. <laughs> but he, uh, but he, he went to Washington State anyways from Pakistan. So they traveled from Lima and Lahore and met in, in this tiny little town and fell in love. Um, 
But I, I think that what they had in common was their sense of foreignness in the U.S. They were both immigrants from such different places. So they, they banded together against the unknown world. That's right. They found solace and comfort in each other and I think helped each other get to know the U.S., um, made each other more comfortable. So was it good for them that they were very different people from different cultures or did that finally get in the way? I think it was good at the beginning because yeah. sometimes I imagine, so let's say that both of my parents were from Peru and met in Pullman. They would have so much in common that they could have sort of wrapped themselves in that culture, right? But instead, because they were so different from each other and different from their environment, I think they kind of had to adapt together. But then as they grew more comfortable in the United States, they realized how very little they had <laughs> in common. Which <laughs> so, so what did that do to you as a kid? Uh, I mean, it was difficult, right? I mean, they um, they started divorcing when I was eight, but it took until I was 12 for them to finish. And it was, it was a difficult uh, sort of split. Um, and I'm also their only child. So when you have these two cultural backgrounds, these, these two perspectives on the world that are clashing all around you, and you're the only bridge between them, it's a difficult... It's a difficult situation, right? I mean, I kept on bouncing back and forth between their houses. It was, like, very common for me to be shuttling from my mom's place to my dad's. But I felt like every time I had to recalibrate emotionally. like Because um, they had different personalities, you mean? Absolutely, yeah. Not just different personalities, which they do. Different priorities, different things that make them happy, different things that upset them. And as a kid, you think, okay, well, if that worked with my mom, I'll do the same thing with my dad. <laughs> but it doesn't work. At all. <laughs> now, what would be an example of that? How would you have to shift your behavior from one house to another? My dad, you know, coming from Pakistan, always used to say that the child in, in his class who got the top score on a test would go to college, and the child who got the second top score would end up homeless. So in that culture of extreme poverty, he was really driven to achieve. Achievement meant everything to him, and mm -hmm. he worked extremely hard himself. And so when we would talk, he would always want to know what my grades were. You know, he would talk about how smart he thought I was and how I was underachieving. And so I had to sort of try to perform um, like I was a future successful physician, I suppose, for him. And how did that contrast with how your mother she could she could care less about my achievements. <laughs> yeah, what, what what was important to her? She wanted me to be close with my family and with her and with her mother, who who then lived with us. And so you know, one person was pushing me to be this relational creature. Yeah. And another was pushing me to be this extremely individualistic high achiever. And I learned. It, it, it felt like I was trying to perform different versions of myself. So you you had to read each one of them, and n figure out if you were registering with what they wanted from you, what they needed from you. Was that the beginning of your pr empathy practice? It was, yeah. I always think of my parents' divorce as an empathy gym for me, right? I mean, it sort of, <laughs> it forced me to, almost really as a survival skill, to work at sort of connecting and reading people. Um, it's, it's, it was a high-stakes uh, <laughs> high version of empathy training. So when we talk about empathy, I think it's always important 
to say what we mean by the word empathy because there are a few words that have so many definitions. Almost everybody who uses it has his or her own definition. Yeah. What's what's yours? (laughs) The consensus among psychologists, and and I think this is where some of the confusion comes from, is that empathy actually is not just one thing at all. It's an umbrella term for multiple ways that we connect with each other emotionally. So, like, for instance, say that you are with a friend having lunch and he gets a phone call and you don't know who's on the other line or what they're saying, but you can tell it's not good because he starts to cry. Right. <laughs> right. So, it's, it's a clue. Yeah. <laughs> so a bunch of things here might happen in you, right? You might feel bad yourself, uh-huh. sort of vicariously catching his emotion. That's what we would call emotional empathy. You might also try to figure out what he's feeling and why, sort of reading him as you put it earlier. That's what we would call cognitive empathy. And at least if you're a good friend, you would care about what he's going through and want him to feel better, which we would call empathic concern, and some people call that compassion. Right. So those three pieces of empathy together make up our ability to connect with each other. Yeah, that in, that kind of encompasses what various people mean by empathy, but the first one— where you just read the other person is possible to have, to experience, without wanting to do anything about it. Absolutely. And that, for instance, a psychopath can read us, a bully can read us really well, a bully or an interrogator, and some and an unprincipled interrogator can make us feel really bad in order to get us to do what he or she wants, what what give up the information or whatever it is. Politicians can f- make us think they feel our pain. Propagandists. Right, I right. Mean, so yeah. it doesn't necessarily lead to good behavior. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, so, uh, you know, no one piece of empathy, really not e- even empathy as a whole, is inherently a positive thing, right? I mean, I think that empathy often leads to positive behaviors like kindness and helping each other and caring for Kind of like the first step, isn't it? Where if you're going to behave well toward another person or look out for their interests, it helps to start off with knowing where they are, what their perspective is. I heard you talk once about rats having empathy for one another. Absolutely. I and mean, that, that goes against our notion of rat. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're going to belong to a rat pack, it probably is in everybody's interest to not behave in, according to the stereotype we have of rats. Exactly. And, you know, but one of the interesting things is that animals, many types of animals, so far it's been documented in non-human primates, monkeys, dolphins, elephants, rats, mice, and some birds, and those are just animals that we've studied, show evidence of sharing each other's pain. So how would a rat exhibit that? Well, for one, so there's different ways to look at it. In mice, they've looked at it in a really, you know, kind of a sad way. So they'll put two mice in adjacent cages, Mm -hmm. but the mice can see each other. And then they'll shock one of them, and then they'll listen to how much the other one squeals when it too is receiving a shock. And it turns out that mice squeal more, basically behave as though they're in greater pain, if they're also looking at another mouse who's in pain. So what we have to do is connect the scientist who conducts this experiment to his own electric shock. And every time he shocks the mouse, see how much he squeals. I mean, a lot of these studies are, you know, morally problematic. No kidding. It's not that great. And, you know, I I will say to the credit of, of, of my field, you know, as we learn more about 
non-human animals, we are becoming much more humane in the way that we experiment on them. The NIH, you know, the largest funding body for research, is no longer sort of allowing chimpanzees to be sort of brought into labs for research. It's interesting that they start with chimpanzees, our, our close cousins, and I wonder how long it'll take till they get to mice, because we there's this kind of popular assumption that other primates are a lot like us. But surely, as you go, as you work your way, what we call down the scale of evolution, we're not so, or 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 the the animal kingdom, we're not so convinced. Of course. You know, so one interesting thing about human empathy, though, is so if you get a bunch of chimpanzees, right, and one of them is in pain or has suffered a loss in, say, a fight, other chimpanzees will feel basically stressed out by that. But instead of knowing how to sometimes, not always, instead of knowing how to comfort the their their sort of fellow chimpanzee, they'll just jump on top of of him, sort of trying to comfort him, but not really well calculating what he needs, right? <laughs> I know I have relatives like that. <laughs> you know, one of the great things about human empathy is it really represents the combination of our deep emotional connection with each other with the power of our the unique power of human imagination. The ability yeah. to see the world in a way that's removed from just our lived experience right now, right? So I can empathize not just with you sitting across the table right now, but with people who are thousands of miles away, with fictional characters who have never suffered and yet can move me, right? That is something that I do believe is uniquely human. I think that's one of the things that those of us who are lucky enough to be in the theater, which encompasses film and and, and other forms, are are lucky because we we get to offer that to the to the rest of the public to the rest of our our community the idea that we get up before you and give you the chance to see into the heart of another person to empathize with somebody who you might not ordinarily even meet Storytelling and acting are such powerful sort of engines for empathy on both sides, actually, right? So um, my my friend Talia Goldstein has done work demonstrating that, um, that pe- kids who get training in acting actually exhibit improved empathy as a result of that training. And also, um, my colleagues and I have done work showing that people who attend a play um, develop empathy not just for those fictional characters, but for um, but for real people. I mean, in essence, it's like you're practicing walking around, as you say, in in not just in the behavior of another person, but in the heart of that person, mm-hmm. and you're showing the heart of that person to others. It's like a performance enhancing drug for empathy in a way. So that brings up the idea that empathy is not just something you come in with and you're stuck with the amount you're born with but you can actually improve on it, and you can also find yourself losing. Absolutely. I mean, I think that a lot of us have the assumption that empathy is something that's just baked into us sort of when we're born uh, by our genes, and that you have some level of empathy, I have some level, and it's just going to stay there for the rest of our life. When I was a kid, I used to think that people, men with muscles, they must have been born that way because I didn't have (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I lived with that illusion for decades because it was much easier to think, well, I wasn't born with it than to, than to go to a gym. And, you know, again, I'm not kidding when I say that my parents' divorce was an empathy gym. And I think a lot of my work now, a lot of my 
life is uh, surrounds the mission of creating empathy gyms for other people, right? Opportunities so, for them so to practice. It, it, you think it's been shown scientifically that you actually can increase empathy by working on it, first of all. Oh, yes, absolutely, in lots of different ways. So one of the most impressive studies came out of Germany a couple of years ago. They used a technique called loving-kindness meditation. Have you ever heard of this? No, I don't think so. It's a, you know, it's a meditation technique where you focus your goodwill. You're sort of really concentrating your compassion first on yourself, then on someone close to you, then on a stranger, and then on all living beings, which sounds a little bit grandiose, but sounds um, a little touchy feely. <laughs> but you know, it's it's a it's a technique that that has been and used now, for thousands. So, so when you do that, then do you take an empathy test to see if you've improved? So these scientists. Um, had people do loving-kindness meditation for 40 weeks. And what they found is that this type of meditation practice improved people's ability to read others' emotions. It made them more likely to help other people. But here's the most amazing part. They scanned their brains before and after they had done this training. And, and they found that parts of the brain that are associated with empathy actually grew in volume as a function of the training. And that change in the brain was tracked to people's greater ability to empathize after the training. So it's like it's changing your body. It's literally building a muscle in yeah, a way. Yeah, right, in your head. Yeah. So what, what, are, what are the parts of the brain associated with empathy without name, naming things that none of us <laughs> can recognize? So the first thing to say is that, and I, I was just talking about parts of the brain associated with empathy, but if anyone ever tells you that there's one part of the brain associated with something as complicated as empathy right. or spirituality, just you can stop listening to them safely, right? <laughs> <laughs> These are very complicated human abilities that are supported by whole systems in the brain. Networks. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, actually, my work in graduate school was around exploring these systems. And I'll, I'll just say um, that there are two that, that psychologists have paid a lot of attention to. One is what's sometimes known as the mirror neuron system, right? Yeah. So basically, areas in the brain that I would that I would activate if I was in pain or if I was feeling joy or if I was feeling um, or, or, or if I was feeling disgust are also coming online when I see you experience those things, right? So that's one property of the brain, this kind of mirroring or resonance. Um, and then there's another system in the brain that's associated with, I would say, imagination. So your ability to think about the past and the future, your ability to think about fiction and fictional characters, and your ability to understand what someone else is thinking. There's a great way of thinking about that brain system, which is that it's, it allows you to escape your own perspective and see things from a different point of view. You know, I, I think a lot about social media and why it might be problematic for empathy. Um, and one of the reasons may be that it reduces us to strings of text. Right? Mm. If, I, if I encounter you on Twitter, I'm not hearing your voice. I'm just seeing the words that, that have come out of your mind. And it turns out that, that you know, my, my friend Juliana Schroeder has done research on this. She finds that, so she's ha done this study where you have people read out loud their political opinions. And, and then a separate group of people either hear the voice of that first person talking about how they feel. Or read the text. Yeah. What do you think happens? It sounds like the text um, d 
divorces them from the person. That's right. In fact, people are less likely to think that 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 the person is fully human. If oh, they, wow. <laughs> if they're reading text from it, especially if they disagree with them already. So I would take it a step further and not have them read the statement, but spontaneously say it from the heart, how they really feel. Yeah. And I, and I wonder if you'd even find people considering a little bit more what the person has to say instead of dismissing it off the bat. Yeah, I think that so often these days in our culture, we feel like what we're getting from, especially people we disagree with, is some canned bad faith argument as opposed to their real expression of feeling, their expression of their experiences, right? And I think if we could break that barrier, it might be easier to connect. Jamil Zaki and I will talk about how to break that barrier when we come back after this short break. Need something new to watch? Look no further than Sundance Now, your new home for exclusive prestige TV drama and obsession-worthy true crime series from around the world. No ads, no cable needed. Escape to the lavish Côte d'Azur in the intoxicating TV drama Riviera, a number one hit in the UK starring Julia Stiles. Or fall in love with a vampire in the smash hit A Discovery of Witches, based on the best-selling All Souls trilogy by Deborah Harkness. Is true crime your thing? Uncover the human stories behind some of the most sensationalized crimes in recent history from the Jonestown Massacre to the infamous Clutter family murders. Sundance Now is available on your computer, tablet, phone, Fire TV, Apple TV, Chromecast, or Roku. No cable needed. To try it for free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code VIVID. Sundance Now. Start something new. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Jamil Zaki and this idea of an empathy gym. What do you do in a, an empathy gym. How do you run an empathy gym? Do you actually have an empathy gym? <laughs> uh, if I, now I'm thinking I should build one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we can at least get a room in an equinox somewhere. But, yeah, uh, just don't do to us what they do to the mice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely not. I mean, so the first step to, to walking into your own empathy gym is realizing that you can build your empathy, right? So ironically, it turns out so ironically it turns out that just believing that empathy is a trait can stop you from working at it. This is actually relevant to you might have heard of, about my colleague Carol Dweck's idea of mindsets, right? That if you have a fixed mindset, so if you think that you can never get smarter, then you, you don't. Yeah, because you see intellectual challenges as a threat mm. that will expose how not super smart you are. Uh, I see. Whereas if you think that you can get smarter, you embrace those challenges as opportunities for growth. And so Carol and I have done the same thing with empathy. And we find that when people believe that empathy is a trait, 
they actually shy away from, for instance, connecting with people of different races from themselves or different political persuasions. But if they believe that they can grow their empathy, they work harder at it in those challenging situations. So the first step to get into your empathy, Jim, is to realize that you can build that muscle. And, okay, once realizing that, what do you do about it? <laughs> I think you try to... So one thing that, that, that we talk a lot about is, is connecting with individuals rather than thinking of groups. So sometimes if you think of somebody, especially if somebody's different from you in some way, mm. right? They're a different race or age or, or gender or some part of their identity is different from yours. It's easy to become uncurious about that person and to reduce them and just say, well, they're just a Democrat or Republican, as opposed to thinking, you know, this person is, uh, has seven siblings and they play the tuba and they mm. wanted to be a chiropractor. The idiosyncrasies that make us human and make it impossible to sort of look away from our humanness, right? You know, in, in um, my book on um, communicating, if I, if I understood you, would I have this look on my face? Uh, I, I talk about a, a study that... Uh, I was part of that tried to build empathy by tracking people on the during the day for a week or two where mm. they would report on encounters they had and whether or not they actually looked at the other person or tried to figure out what they were feeling during the day and there mm. seemed to be evidence that it, that later when they came into the to the lab and took um empathy tests they they rose, I think, significantly in their ability to empathize. So you uh, that gave me confidence that you could work on it, Absolutely. and I and I do it during the day. I I try strangers. I read their faces and try to figure out what they're feeling, what they're going through. Absolutely. I mean, that's the type of training that's available to us all the time, and and that's part of what worries me a little bit about the way that we're interacting increasingly these days, which is sort of not in these live person-to-person interactions, but rather online in ways that, that we're presenting a version of ourselves and seeing a presented version of other people. So there's, I get the impression that there are some good things about the way we interact in, say, social media, yeah. and there are bad things. Do you do you have a list of good and bad things? <laughs> Absolutely. I what mean, are they? Well, so I mean, I think of social media as humanity's greatest empathic opportunity of all time, which we don't take advantage yeah, of. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, because it flattens our landscape and and makes it possible to connect with anyone, any place, at any time mm. on their own terms. Mm. I mean, you could you could shop for people's experiences in a way you could you could have access right whereas before let's say there's a disaster uh, somewhere on the other side of of the globe before maybe you'd read a newspaper article about it that cites the statistics now you could probably find you know videos that people are taking of themselves responding to it right mm-hmm. so you could connect so much more vividly and directly with other people around the world but Unfortunately, the platforms that we use most often are not built with that goal in mind. Social media platforms operate on very similar principles to to casinos, Mm. right? And that's not necessarily... I don't think people realize that when they go online, it's like they're walking into a place that have oxygen being pumped in and the lights are on 24 hours a day. And no clocks. Yep, yep. Exactly. And, and, you know, there used to be this thing where on Facebook you'd scroll for a while and then you had to press a button 
if you wanted to get more content, right? And they took that away several years ago and nobody noticed, but it has this it has this effect of like taking the clocks away. You can just scroll endlessly Infinitely. and just be bathed in this ambient information and <laughs> pictures about people. And then there's this thing that negative posts, negative posts seem to rise faster than positive posts. Is that a do you suppose that's a human failing? I think it's a human failing that is also incentivized by these by these platforms, right? I'll give you an example. Uh, on on Twitter, it turns out that when people express outrage towards people who are different from themselves, they get rewarded through additional likes and retweets. Mm. And that sort of little dose of social reward reinforces that behavior. It's like, like giving a, like not to go back to rats too much, but it's like giving a rat, you know, a piece of cheese for acting in a certain way. Guess what? It will do that same, it will perform that same action again. And so when people get rewarded for expressing outrage, they're more likely to express outrage later on. It ratchets up their anger based on the way that incentives on Twitter work. There are other places online, though, that are much healthier. So, Like what? That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's this great website called Change of View. It started as a message board. People would post if they had an opinion that they knew was somewhat controversial, but they also were open to learning more. What a good idea. And so, they, and, and so you'd post a really heartfelt version of why you feel this way. And how many trolls entered on the, without a moment's notice? I'm sure many, but here's the thing. The way that you were incentivized, the things that rose to the top were scored differently than they would be, say, on Twitter, right? So what what happened would be people had to respond, and you could only respond if you wrote at least two paragraphs. So you couldn't just hurl an insult at somebody. So you had to write, you know, a fair amount in order to get posted. And then people would push posts to the top of the page. And the the thing that they would upvote on is if it was illuminating to them. So they would, they would give it a light bulb if it had changed their way of seeing something, if it had shed light on the issue as they saw it. So light bulbs would rise a little faster. Yeah. That's really interesting to, to develop a way that a large number of people can enter into one another's growth space in a way instead of a wrestling match. Well, I mean, the way that you put it was really great that, you know, when we can spontaneously express ourselves and see that expression from somebody else, that is, that's, a, that's an avenue to real connection that I think could happen in any space. It could happen online. It could happen in person over the phone. You know, um, I've been teaching this class at Stanford called Becoming Kinder, that Mm. in essence, you know, we talk about the science of empathy, but each week I issue a kindness challenge to my students. What what would be an example of that? Well, to the point that we're discussing now, we've got one that we call Disagree Better. Mm -hmm. So this one always freaks out my students, but yeah, I basically (laughs) tell them, you know, find someone you disagree with. It doesn't have to be about a political issue, but it has to be about something that's important to you. And then... Instead of just talking about your opinions, interview the person about how they came to have that opinion in the first place. And, and then share with them how you came to have that opinion, in your opinion, in the first place. So basically try to make a human connection around the disagreement rather than focusing on, you know, the things that you hate about each other's opinions. So you've done this. Yeah. And does it happen that people arrive at a changed opinion or do they just tolerate one another 
better with different opinions. <laughs> Not a lot of people said that they changed their opinion um, in my class or that they felt that they changed the opinion of the other person. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting, you know, a lot of them said that they understood the, the other person's perspective and respected them more. You know, sometimes someone has an opinion who's different from us and we just assume that that makes them a bad person. And, and I, you know, I, I personally don't believe that most people are bad. I think that people respond to the environment and experiences that they've lived through. And I think that understanding that people's opinions and their views and their feelings are responses to their life stories is a really powerful way to to get beyond our stereotypes. And that's what happened to my students. There was one student who talked with her father um, about a really contentious issue. And she said that after listening to her dad, she understood him more and sort of respected his perspective. But that after he had li- after she had listened to him, he turned around and listened to her. She felt in the deepest way he had listened to her on this issue ever. Mm. So it was almost as though giving that giving that person airs airtime to really talk about themselves makes them more curious about you as well. And the key to it seems to be to. Let the other person know how you arrived historically, biographically, at this position that you hold, which gives it flesh and blood, and it's not just an intellectual uh, stab you're making at the other person. It seems like what they used to do in Congress, where they Hmm. could accept one another at the end of the day as fellow fellow Americans, fellow patriots who had different uh, different views about how to make the country work better. And now they, uh, you don't hear stories like that so much anymore. No, I mean, peop- my, my, my friend Adam Waits has this research where he shows that both Republicans and Democrats believe that, that their party holds their opinions because they care about the country and the other party is cynically sort of just out for its own aims, right? And that it's a fundamental danger to the country. The horrible and, thing would be if they're both right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, I heard you talking with Isabel Allende recently yes. and she was talking about, beautifully described how stories matter to people more than numbers or, you know, or, or statistics. And I think that's the one of the things that we've lost in our current moment is we don't see each other's stories anymore. We don't have curiosity about each other's stories. We just are focused on the end point of those stories. If it's an opinion we don't like, if it's a viewpoint that we can't handle. Who are the toughest people you've worked with uh, in trying to help them be empathic? One of the hardest groups that I've worked with are um, people in medical settings. You know, physicians, nurses, and social workers. Really? Yeah, because these are very empathic people. But sometimes if they empathize in the wrong way, they get totally exhausted by it, right? I mean, they sort of lose themselves because they're drowning in other people's pain. And so some of them feel like they have a terrible choice to make. Either I continue empathizing and sort of grind myself down into a nub, or I switch off my empathy almost on purpose, mm-hmm. dehumanize my patients so that I can keep on being a person. No, I, let me be clear that no physician or nurse or social worker would, would say that they're doing that. Or, or do it de- deliberately, probably, but there's probably a process. Helen Rice, who trains uh, physicians to have better empathy, makes a big point of saying to them, you have to get in with empathy and then you have to know how to get out. 
That's right. Or you burn out or you close down. Yeah. I don't want my therapist crying while I'm talking to him saying, wow, your life really is that bad. <laughs> oh, my God. Have you ever thought of suicide? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, right? I, 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 want, I want my... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I want my therapist to see me, care for me, but not necessarily to feel exactly what I'm feeling in that moment. Yeah, that that's the that's the skill of it. It's it's not touchy feely as it, as much as it sounds to to a lot of people. It's a it's a real tool, I think. Absolutely, and and, and it and it has to be used like all tools. It has to be used carefully. People often ask me, what's the right level of empathy to feel? Are you telling me I can build empathy, so that means I need to turn it up to maximum volume at all time? I say, no, I, I don't want, I, I, in fact, I won't tell you where your empathy should be. I just want you to know that you're the one controlling the knob. What are we leaving out? What, what, what should I know more about this? Well, I, I think one important thing is that uh, when we, what we pay attention to in our culture becomes magnetic to us, right? People are a very conformist species and we tend to do what other people around us do. But sometimes it's hard to know what the majority really feels or thinks. And so we often look to the loudest people in our culture and assume that they represent everybody, right? So we see really, you know, we see bullies in our schools or we see, you know, really mean people on Twitter or on Capitol Hill or wherever. Yeah, right. And we assume that that's what our culture is and, and we kind of fall in line. And I think that it's, it's really problematic and dangerous how cynical we've become about our capacity for kindness. Um, you know, since, since my book came out, I've received hundreds of emails from people who say, I want to be more empathic, and I want our culture to be more empathic, but I'm the only one. And I think, can I put you in a group chat with each other? There's many people who want this. And I think if we, when we focus on kindness and also make our own kindness and empathy visible, we can sort of, that, that's the first step to going beyond just building our own empathy in our own empathy gym and starting to sort of provide that opportunity for our culture more broadly. It seems that people need to raise the volume of their own thoughts about empathy. Is that, I mean, if, if we're listening to the loudest voices in the, in the room, and the room is the nation, then somebody's got to at least whisper about this. It's, it's worth it to be kinder. It's worth it to listen. It's worth it to consider what the other person is thinking and feeling and how they got there. I mean, so I guess, I mean, a book like yours and our, our, the efforts we try to make on this podcast is an attempt to do that. What else can be done? Well, I mean, I think that, that first of all, ex you're exactly right. I mean, making it loud, sort of communicating the value of this, uh, of, of human connection, not just the value, the absolute necessity of human connection to our survival is, is the beginning, right? That's the start. And that's what, I'm, that's what I've been trying to do. And that's what you've been trying to do. And I think the other thing is to notice how prevalent kindness already is. You know, how, do you, how do you counter the idea that kindness or listening or even just communicating well is weakness? With data. There's, ah, good. So, like, what would that? What would be an example of that? Oh, there's all sorts of evidence that 
people who are attuned to others or who work to be attuned to others succeed even in ways that cynics would be impressed by, right? They're more, they're more successful professionally. They rise to positions of leadership. They're more influential on others. You know, I mean, I don't think of empathy as something that, that you do just to succeed or get ahead, but one can frame it that way. I mean, there are many ways that empathy helps the person who experiences it is an advantage, not a weakness. Do you think leadership classes are being taught in that context now? Not enough, um, but I see a movement in that direction. And I think that's very important because leaders don't only um, lead by example, they also set the tone for their cultures. You know, they, mm-hmm. they determine what is most visible. The people who are rewarded and highlighted, right? Who's the employee of the month? Is it somebody who made a bunch of sales, or is it somebody who helped a lot of people in the organization work better together, right? I mean, those are, you know, the the people who we raise up become the examples for the folks around them. We did one study in middle schools where we asked students how much they cared about empathy and why, and then we collated their responses because it turned out that most of these students really felt positively about empathy. And then when they got back to class, we showed them a brochure of their friends and classmates and why they valued empathy. So we weren't just saying, you know, empathy is important and good. We were saying, look around you. Mm. The people around you care and, and value caring in and of itself. And that made students believe that empathy was more popular. And that, in turn, made them act more kindly. Right? So it's not just about making ourselves loud. It's also about helping people notice maybe the quiet majority around them that is yearning for more connection, not less. Well, from your mouth to all of our ears, <laughs> that sounds great. We, we, our time is up now, but we always end our show with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers, <laughs> and usually they, they devolve into long conversations. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I start by asking them where they got those facts. Hmm. What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Uh, um, I won't use the language that they said, but I was talking about the value of empathy and caring, and somebody said, well, but what if I just don't give a bleep? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like the beginning of a long conversation. uh, Well, then I wonder why you're here. (laughs) How did did you get like that? (laughs) Okay, how do, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, um, you can show them that you're not paying attention. Maybe look at your phone. <laughs> <laughs> that, that seems to work a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you like to start up a real conversation with someone you don't know at a dinner party? I I like to ask people sort of what the about their uh, recent experiences that meant something to them. So what's what's the last time that you were really you know that that you felt um, frustrated, or what's the last time that you were surprised by something? What's the last time and they don't feel you're prying? Uh, you know, I mean, you have to. Oh, it, maybe that's not the first sentence in the like, conversation. You, 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 start with, you look frustrated. <laughs> how, how did that happen? <laughs> um, uh, how would you phrase it? Um, you know, so so one way in is by noticing something together, right? So like uh-huh. a, a great, a much lo- more low impact but fun way to start a conversation is to notice something around the room and then 
ask whether the other person notices it too and start telling stories about it together. Oh, that's great. That's a good idea. What gives you confidence? Experience um, and doing the homework. Mm. You know, I've, I've been talking about empathy for so long and I, it, I, it has only been recently that I felt that whatever question people can ask, I probably have thought about it before. Now, maybe I forgot the, what I learned. About. <laughs> yeah. But experience, that really does yeah. help. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Oh, God, uh, so many. Um, I, I'll, I'll just go with uh, Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, uh, why? That, uh, I was 17 and, you know, learning about storytelling and the his style of storytelling and, and the, the power of of that book and and it was it was just so weird <laughs> you know because it's a, this apocalyptic fiction and it's about the invention of nuclear weapons and also has all these other elements to it but just his narrative voice and the and the weirdness of the story made me want to write uh made me know that i wanted to write books um for the rest of my life now tell me the answer to a very important question are you attempting to make a world-class dish of oatmeal? <laughs> I forget where I heard that. Tell, mean, tell me about this. Uh, so I have two small children. They're four and two. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I think you might have got this from my lab website because on my biography it says I'm trying to make Michelin star quality oatmeal. They are very discerning. Um, connoisseurs of of, <laughs> of of just a few dishes, and w- w- what is it they like about good oatmeal? <laughs> what are you trying to accomplish? For a long time, I thought they just liked that their mother had made it instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe too. <laughs> <laughs> they would say, you know, they would say, "Oh, Papa, this is you always make bad oatmeal." And so I, I tinkered with the recipe for um, for. Well, for what do you start? Would you start with steel cut? Yep, yep. You start yeah. with steel cut, and then for, I I learned, you know, I was doing I was doing honey and a little bit of banana and kind of mashing the banana in there and my proportions were all off they want a lot they want a fair amount of banana much more than i would and uh and it's two percent not not whole to you know to add on top so two percent of milk yeah yeah oh wow (laughs) these kids are very particular they really are (laughs) well i sure have enjoyed this conversation thanks so much jamil oh me as well it's been a real pleasure thank you This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Jamil Zaki's book, The War for Kindness, Building Empathy in a Fractured World, should be on everyone's reading list this holiday season. And if you visit his website, warforkindness.com, you'll also find more information about his work at the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab. And you can find more empathy games and challenges that will help you engage and connect more thoughtfully with others. A good one to test during the holiday season is challenge number two, how to spend kindly. That might come in handy the next time you're caught up in the frenzy of a doorbuster. That website again is warforkindness.com.
This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with earthquake expert Dr. Lucy Jones. Dr. Jones just happened to be holding her one-year-old baby while being interviewed on television after a big quake in California. And that turned out to be a breakthrough moment in connecting and communicating. That really strong response to me doing it as a mother, comforting a baby essentially as I'm comforting the city, that was, you know, people explicitly talked about that because of that image. And it was like, oh, this isn't just about science. This is really about psychology and reassurance. And that started me in a process towards saying, you know, what's important here is telling people what we know rather than what we don't know. Dr. Lucy Jones, and how she's now applying what she learned about communicating earthquake risks to the even more challenging task of communicating the risks of climate change when Clear and Rivet returns after a holiday break on January 7th. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.